BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 7 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace Chapter Seven: The Iron Circlet Madame had left London, and my first wild hope was that she might not return. But this was quickly doomed to disappointment, for two months after the events related in the last story, as I was walking down Welbeck Street, I noticed that the blinds in her house were up, that there were fresh curtains to the windows, and that the place bore all the usual marks of habitation. With a sinking heart I was just commenting on this fact when I saw the hall door open, and a slender, dark-eyed young woman run down the steps. She glanced at me, raised her brows very slightly as if she recognized me, half paused as if about to speak, then changed her mind and walked rapidly just a few paces in front of me down the street. I had certainly never seen her before, and pitying her as in all probability one of Madame's victims, went on my own way. In the course of the same afternoon I visited Dufrayer at his office. A glance at his face showed me that he had something to say. He drew me aside with a certain eagerness and began to speak. "'I really believe,' he cried, "'that the tide has turned at last. Madame is so emboldened by her success that she is certain to do something foolish.' "'She is back in town,' I interrupted. "'I passed her house this morning, and—' "'She returned about a fortnight ago,' interrupted Dufrayer. "'Now listen, Head. I have something to tell you.' You know that for a long time Tyler's agents have been following Madame Colucci? It was only yesterday morning that Tyler drew my attention to a matter which looks uncommonly suspicious. But read this advertisement for yourself. As he spoke, Dufrayer handed me the Times of a week back. Under the heading, Situations Vacant, he pointed to the following words. Wanted, a first-rate bacteriologist to advise on a matter of a very private nature, handsome remuneration to anyone possessing the necessary knowledge, apply in strict privacy by letter only to k k three fifty times office e c i put the paper down what is there suspicious about that i asked at first sight one would think nothing was the answer but tyler is so alert that not a single thing escapes him now the k k first aroused his sense of inquiry catherine colucci i cried surely if this were an advertisement put in by madame she would not knowing how she is wanted use her own initials it seems scarcely likely he answered but i will tell you exactly what has happened on seeing the advertisement tyler at once posted a man in the times advertisement office explaining his business to the clerks tyler's man was instructed how to proceed about eleven o'clock on the morning after the advertisement was first published a person arrived received two letters and went away 
Tyler's clerk immediately followed this man, who went straight to Madame Colucci's house. It was a lucky shot of Tyler's, and they are following up the scent closely. He has further discovered that they have engaged no less a person than the well-known bacteriologist James Lockhart to undertake this very mysterious business. His private laboratory is in Devonshire Street. The question now arises, what steps are we to take? I see that you have an idea, I replied. Well, I have, or rather it is Tyler's. He suggests a bold step. He thinks that you and I ought to call on Lockhart. There is no question with regard to his position and knowledge. He has done more original work during the last two years in bacteriology than anyone else in the country, and if this terrible brotherhood should worm some secret out of him on a plausible pretext, they may use it to deadly effect, making him the unsuspecting agent of a terrible crime. Knowing all that we do, Head, I think we are bound to see him. I thought over Dufrayer's suggestion. I am puzzled to know what to say, was my reply. Lockhart may not like our interfering. Very possibly, but nevertheless the duty of warning him remains the same. If you feel so, Dufrayer, I have no doubt you are right, I said. When will you go to see Lockhart? I shall, of course, be willing to accompany you. I cannot look him up to-day, for I am unfortunately busy at the courts to the last moment, but I suggest that you and I go to his house to-morrow morning at ten. Very well, I answered. I will meet you outside his door at that hour. A few minutes later I left Dufrayer. Absorbed in anxious thought, I presently found myself in Piccadilly, and then in Bond Street. I walked on slowly. My thoughts were so anxious that they seemed to impede my movements. Madame had returned. Once again she was at work on some hideous machination. Once again Dufrayer and I held our lives in our hands. Knowing the woman as I did, I could scarcely agree with Dufrayer that, emboldened by success, she was becoming less cautious. Never yet was she known to allow her vigilance to sleep, and not even in the hour of victory would it fail her. On the face of it, this very open advertisement looked queer, but surely there was more behind. Yes, we must warn Lockhart. He would resent our interfering, but what matter? He was a strong man in every sense of the word, and I rather wondered at Madame selecting him to do her deadly work. I had seen him more than once during the last couple of years. His remarkable genius and the brilliancy of some of his lectures before the Royal Society returned vividly to my memory. The hour was now between four and five. I suddenly remembered that I had promised to meet a man in some tea-rooms, which had lately been opened in Bond Street. I found the right place and walked down a long, narrow passage, which opened into a small courtyard surrounded by coffee and tea-rooms of different descriptions. The seclusion and unexpected quiet of the place were refreshing. The soft notes of distant music took my steps upstairs to the first floor, and the next instant I had entered a tea-room, as still and peaceful as if London were miles away. Some girls, tastefully dressed and looking like ladies, were waiting on the visitors. I seated myself at a small table and waited for my friend. I looked at my watch. He was late. I resolved to wait for him for a few moments, but before many had passed, one of the young waitresses approached me with a telegram, asking if my name was Head. I replied in the affirmative, and tore it open. It was from my friend. He had suddenly been called out of town, and could not keep his appointment. I ordered tea for myself, and leaning back in my chair, looked around me. The room was tastefully decorated, with a certain aiming after simplicity, which produced a most inviting effect. My tea was brought on a small tray, and at the same time a girl, very quietly dressed, took the place opposite to mine. My first glance caused me to look at her again. She was the dark-eyed girl whom I had seen that morning coming down Madame Colucci's steps. I observed that her eyes, larger than those of most Englishwomen, 
wore a strained expression, otherwise she was fresh and young-looking. I poured a cup of tea, and was just raising it to my lips, when she suddenly bent forward. "'I am addressing Mr. Norman Head, am I not?' she said in a low, hurried voice. I bowed coldly in acknowledgment. "'Forgive me,' she said again. "'I know that you are very much surprised at my addressing you, but I must tell you the simple truth. I meant to speak to you this morning, outside Madame Colucci's house, but I could not summon the courage. I happened to be in Bond Street just now, and saw you passing. You entered here, and I followed you. I know I have taken a very bold step, but I cannot rest until I tell you something. It is not a message of any sort, but it is a word of warning.' I made an impatient exclamation. "'If you have anything to say, I must, of course, listen,' I replied. "'But remember, you are a total stranger to me.' "'I will tell you my name,' she said eagerly. "'Valentia Ward. I am Mr. Lockhart's secretary. You know Mr. Lockhart, of 205 Devonshire Street, do you not?' "'By name? Well, you allude to the great bacteriologist?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'I have been his secretary for over a year. I work with him every morning in his laboratory.' It is about him, and also about you, Mr. Head, that I want to speak. Well, say what you have to say as quickly as possible, I replied. I will do so. Bend forward a little, so that others may not overhear. She poured herself out a cup of tea as she uttered the last words. Her hand shook slightly. It was a delicate and very small white hand, the blue veins showing under the skin. I happen to know, she continued, no matter how or why, that you, Mr. Head, and a certain Mr. Dufrayer, a well-known criminal solicitor, intend to follow up an advertisement which appeared in the Times of this day week. The advertisement was to the effect that a first-rate bacteriologist was required to advise on a matter of a private nature. Mr. Dufrayer has learned, no matter how, that Mr. James Lockhart, of 205 Devonshire Street, has been appointed to undertake the work. It is your intention, and also Mr. Dufrayer's, to call upon him, in order to warn him with regard to some hidden danger. Am I not right?' "'You must forgive me, but I cannot reply to your question.' She smiled very faintly. "'You are a wise man to guard your lips, but your face is my answer,' she said. "'Now I will tell you why I have ventured to speak to you. I want you to give up your intention of calling on Mr. Lockhart.' "'And by what right do you, a complete stranger, interfere with my movements?' "'By the right of my superior knowledge,' she answered at once. "'My reasons I cannot explain, but they are of the gravest character.' You and your friend will implicate yourselves most seriously if you do what you intend to do. You will run into danger if you meddle in this matter. In giving you this warning I risk much myself, and I earnestly beseech of you to believe me and to attend to my words. Do not see Mr. Lockhart. Let the advertisement alone. By doing so you will circumvent. You will circumvent. Her lips trembled. Fire shone in her big eyes. She rose to her feet. I can do no more, she said. If you fail to understand me, I am sorry, but I have at least performed a very painful and necessary duty. She drew down her veil, went to a little table near the door, where an accountant sat, paid for her tea, and left the room. I sat on where she had left me, feeling puzzled and shaken. The girl's face bore the impress of truth, and yet it seemed hard not to believe that she was one of Madame's agents. Had I not actually seen her coming down the steps of Madame's house? She seemed troubled when she spoke. When she pleaded with me, her voice shook with the extreme and passionate eagerness of her words. But all these signs might only be put on in order to prevent an interference, which Madame, from long experience, had learned to dread. When I met Dufrayer on the following morning outside Lockhart's house, I took his arm, and walked with him for a moment or two up and down the street. 
I then related briefly the incident of the day before. He listened to my words with marked attention. "'What do you think?' I said when I had concluded. "'That beyond doubt the girl has been employed to warn you,' was his reply. "'Lockhart's danger is even greater than I was at first inclined to suspect. If he is not very careful, he will find himself in a hornet's nest. Yes, we must warn him immediately. It is past ten. Let us ring the bell. He will probably be at home.' In reply to our summons, we were told that Mr. Lockhart was within, and were shown at once into a private room next to his laboratory. He joined us almost immediately. His appearance was already well known to me, but when he entered the room I was struck once again by his remarkable personality. He was a tall and very heavily built man, standing quite six feet, with broad shoulders and a jovial red face, as unlike the typical scientist as man could be. His manner was bluff and hearty, and he had a merry smile, suggestive more of a country squire than of one who spent most of his time over culture plates. "'What can I do for you, sir?' he said genially, extending his hand to me. "'Your name, Mr. Head, is not unfamiliar to me, and if I remember right, we were once antagonists in print in a discussion on nitrifying bacteria. I am afraid in the end I had to yield to your superior knowledge, but I should like now to show you a little thing which may change your views.' "'Thank you,' I answered but I have not called to discuss your work. May I introduce my friend, Mr. Dufrayer? He and I have come here this morning on a matter which we believe to be of utmost importance. It is of a strictly private nature, and when you have heard what we have both got to say, you will, I am sure, pardon what must seem an unwarrantable espionage. He raised his eyebrows, and looked from Dufrayer to me in some astonishment. I drew a copy of the Times from my pocket, and pointed to the advertisement. As I did so, I noticed for the first time that the door between this room and the next was open, and at the same time the distinct noise of breaking glass came to my ears. "'Pardon me a moment,' said Lockhart. "'My secretary is in the next room, and you would rather that no one overheard us. I will just go to her and ask her to do some work in my study.' Still retaining the copy of the Times in his hand, he entered a large laboratory, where doubtless his own important discoveries were made. "'Ah, Miss Ward!' he exclaimed. "'So you have broken that culture-tube. Well, never mind now. Don't wait to pick up the fragments. I am particularly engaged. There are letters which I want you to copy in my study. You can go there until I send for you.' The light steps of a young woman were heard leaving the room. A door was opened at the farther end and closed again softly. Lockhart returned to us. "'I am fortunate,' he said, "'in having secured as my secretary a most intelligent and clever girl, one in a thousand. At one time she thought of embracing the medical profession, and has studied bacteriology a little herself. But what possessed her to break a valuable culture-tube just now is more than I can understand. Poor girl, she was quite white and trembling when I went into the room, and yet I am never harsh to her. Her name is Valentia Ward, a pretty creature, and a better secretary than any man I have ever come across. But there, gentlemen, you must pardon my alluding to my own private affairs. The loss of that culture-tube has upset me a trifle, but I shall soon put matters right and Miss Ward need not have looked so stricken. Now, let us attend to business. You speak of an advertisement in this paper. Where is it? Is it to-day's edition? No, the edition of a week back, I replied. I have reason to know, Mr. Lockhart, that you have answered this advertisement. Pray glance your eye over it again. It is in your own interest that my friend and I have come here to-day. I fail to understand, said Lockhart, a trifle coldly. I will gladly explain, I said. We have the strongest reasons for suspecting that these words were inserted by a well-known lady doctor called Madame Colucci. Still, I do not perceive your meaning, he replied, even granted that such is the case. May I ask what business this is of yours? 
"'You certainly may. Our business is to warn you against any dealings with that woman.' "'Indeed. But the lady in question is well known, and her scientific attainments are respected by every scientist in the kingdom. I think we must either close our present interview, or I must beg of you to give me a further explanation.' "'As honourable men we can speak quite plainly,' I replied. "'However impossible it may seem to you, I am now prepared to tell you that Madame Colucci is the head of a gang, or secret society, whose headquarters are at present in London. This society is perpetrating some of the most terrible crimes the century has known. I could mention half a dozen which would be familiar to you. Up till now, Madame has eluded justice with a most remarkable ingenuity, but she cannot do so much longer. All my friend and I beg of you is to have nothing to do with her, and, beyond all other things, not to put into her hands, or into the hands of any of her confederates, one or more of the great secrets of bacteriology. You know, as well as I do, how omnipotent such powers would be in the hands of the unscrupulous. While I was speaking, Lockhart's red face became troubled. He wrinkled his forehead and knit his brows. "'What you have told me sounds almost incredible,' he said at last. "'I suppose I ought to be obliged to you, but I scarcely know that I am. You have upset my confidence and sown doubt where, I must frankly say, I had absolute faith.' since however you have spoken to me so frankly it is but fair that i should tell you what i know of this matter it is true that i did see an advertisement in the times and replied to it famous bacteriologist as i doubtless am i am also a poor man pure science as you know mr head brings riches to none i answered the advertisement and received almost immediately afterwards a letter from madame colucci asking me to call upon her at her house in welbeck street she received me in her consulting-room and put a few questions to me I found her frank and agreeable, and there was nothing in the least sinister, either in her manner or in the disclosures which she was obliged to make to me. She soon perceived that I was admirably adapted to carry out her requirements, said that she would give me the work if I cared to undertake it, and on my promising to do so, proceeded at once to business. I cannot divulge the nature of the research which I am about to make on her behalf, as I am under a solemn vow not to do so, but I can at least assure you that it is a perfectly honourable matter, and the pay, well, the pay is so good that I cannot afford to lose it. Madame Colucci is prepared to give me what may mean a small fortune. But I will tell you this, Mr. Head, if I find out that what you have just said is really the case, and I see the smallest likelihood of my information being used for dishonourable purposes, I shall withdraw. You cannot do more, I answered, and I am much obliged to you for listening to us so patiently. I respect the honesty of your purpose, he said. May I also beg that you will regard what I have just said as strictly confidential? The ghost of a smile flitted across his face. It passed almost immediately. I will, he replied. It seems hard to press you still further, said Defrayer, but, short of abusing any confidence you may have made with Madame Colucci, would it be possible for you to keep us posted in what goes on? I think I may promise that also, and as a preliminary, I may as well say that I expect to leave town at a moment's notice on this very business. I do not know where I am going, for I have not yet received full instructions. It occurs to me that if matters are really as serious as you think them to be, it would be as well for me to go, in order to make Madame Colucci show her hand. Yes, replied Defrayer. You are right there, Mr. Lockhart. The interests involved are so enormous that we shall only be able to defeat our enemies on their own ground. But if you happen to be going to a lonely part of the country, do not, I beg of you, go unarmed, and also communicate freely with Mr. Head or myself. You need have no fear, as our agents and detectives will be ready and alert, and will follow you anywhere. Again that almost imperceptible smile passed across his face. Certainly to look at him, he did not appear to be a man to want much protection in case of a personal encounter. 
His huge frame towered above Dufrayer and myself as he rose and conducted us to the door. Well, said Dufrayer when we got outside, what do you think of it all? My own opinion is, he added, without waiting for me to speak, that we shall have them this time. Madame has not conducted this matter with half of her usual acumen. Her successes have rendered her thoroughly contemptuous of us. Depend upon it, she will soon learn her lesson. And what about Miss Valencia Ward? I cried. From Lockhart's manner he seems to place absolute trust in her, and yet either there is grave mischief ahead, of which we know nothing, or the girl is in Madame's pay. I have not the slightest doubt which way the balance lies, said Dufrayer, but Lockhart has been warned by us, and he is quite capable of looking after himself. We could not well betray Miss Ward. Having neglected her advice, we show her very plainly that we do not believe the cock-and-bull story she tried to tempt you with. And yet the girl looked as if she spoke the truth, I answered. Ah, Head, you were always influenced by a pretty face, said Dufrayer. Had Miss Ward been old and wrinkled, you would have treated her cool attempt to impose upon you with the harshness it deserves. She was agitated and upset to-day, at any rate, I replied. Beyond doubt it was nervousness at suddenly hearing our voices, which caused her to break that culture tube. Dufrayer said nothing further, and I went to my own house. All during the day which followed I could not get either Lockhart or his secretary out of my head, and more than once I congratulated myself upon having acted so promptly under Dufrayer's advice. Having opened Lockhart's eyes, it was scarcely likely that he would be hoodwinked now, and if Madame herself did not fall into our hands, in all probability some of her gang would. Between four and five on the afternoon of that same day, to my great astonishment, Lockhart was shown into my laboratory. His fat face was redder than ever, and he was panting with excitement. "'Ah!' he said when he saw me. "'I hope I am in time. Get ready quickly, Mr. Head.' He took out his handkerchief and began to mop his face. "'I have suddenly received orders to go down from Waterloo by the 510 to Lymington, in Hampshire, and to bring three broth cultures of a certain bacillus with me. I am to be met at Lymington by a boat. Beyond this I know nothing.' During the day which has passed I have thought more than once of what you have told me, and I will confess that my suspicions are aroused. On receiving this sudden summons, it occurred to me that if you were to accompany me we could see for ourselves what the matter really means, and perhaps be able to frustrate Madame's plans. Can you manage to come? If so, we have not a single moment to lose. My cab is waiting at the door. By Jove, this looks really like business, I said, but I ought to let Dufrayer know. You have no time to do so now. We can barely manage to get the train by going straight off. If we reach Waterloo in time, we can send your friend a telegram from there. True, I answered. I will go with you at once. Lockhart glanced impatiently at his watch. It is more than half-past four, he said. It will be a gallop to the station as it is. I considered for a moment. There was no time to pack anything, and I dared not lose what might be the opportunity that I had so longed to meet. I ran upstairs, put on a Norfolk suit and travelling cap, and thrust a revolver into my pocket. I then joined my companion. "'Is there any chance of your being watched to see if you come down alone?' I said, as our cab dashed along the Marleybone Road. Lockhart turned and stared at me without replying. "'I have not thought of that,' he said at last. "'It is a possible contingency,' I answered. "'I know the wariness of my enemy. Had we not better go down to Lymington in separate carriages? When we get there it will be dark.' and we can start off together without being observed. "'That would be a good plan,' he replied. "'I will go third class. You can go first. The clock pointed to eight minutes past five as we dashed up the incline to Waterloo. We rushed for our tickets, and just as the doors were being closed, were running up the platform towards the train. As I flew past the third-class compartments to my own more luxurious carriage, 
I fancied I saw in one, marked, Ladies Only, a face pressed against the window and watching me. It was the face of a woman with dark eyes. It appeared for a flash, and then disappeared behind a curtain. My heart sank with sick apprehension. If Valencia Ward were indeed following us to Lymington, there was no doubt whatever that she was one of Madame's accomplices. She knew that I had met Lockhart contrary to her warning, and was now, doubtless, hurrying to Yarmouth to reveal the truth to Madame. The train sped on, and my thoughts continued to be both busy and anxious. The face with its dark eyes pursued me, turn where I would. I now regretted that a certain sense of honour had forbade my telling Lockhart of my suspicions that morning, and I determined to do so when we reached Lymington. There was no change at Brockenhurst, and at half-past eight we drew up at Lymington Pier. Pulling the collar of my Norfolk jacket well up, and drawing down my cap over my eyes, I stepped out. Lockhart passed me, pushed slightly against me in doing so, and slipped a note into my hand. I glanced at this at once. "'Go in the boat to Yarmouth, and then on to Freshwater. I am coming over in a private boat,' he wrote. I looked up quickly. Already he was lost in the throng of passengers who had left the train. I had no opportunity to give him any warning. There was nothing for it but to obey his directions, take a ticket to Yarmouth, and hasten on board. In a few moments I found myself steaming down the river and out into the Solent. The sun had set, and the moon would not rise for an hour or two. I stood on deck, looking back at the lights of Lymington as they were reflected in the water. Suddenly I felt someone touch me. I looked round, and Miss Ward was by my side. "'You have disregarded my advice,' she said. "'You are in great danger. Don't land at Yarmouth. Take the return boat to Lymington.' Her voice was so earnest, and there was such a ring of real distress in it, that try as I would, I could scarcely treat her with the harshness which I thought her conduct deserved." "'You are a woman,' I began, but—' "'Oh, I know all that you think of me,' she answered. "'But the risk is too terrible, and my duty too plain, for any harsh judgment of yours to influence me. Go back, go back while there is still time.' "'I cannot understand you,' I said. "'You warn me of some vague danger, and yet you allow Lockhart, the man who employs you, to run into what, according to your own showing, is a trap for his destruction. How can I respect you, or believe your words, when you act in such a manner?' "'I dare not tell you the whole truth,' she answered. "'I wish I had courage. But it means too much. Mr. Lockhart is in no danger. You are. Won't you go back? Won't you be guided by me?' "'No,' I said. "'Where he goes, I will go. His danger is mine also. Miss Ward, you are implicating yourself in the queerest way. You are showing me all too plainly that you are on the side of—' "'You think that I am Madame Colucci's agent?' she answered. "'Well, there is only one way of saving you.' I tried yesterday to do what I could. You would not be warned. When I heard your voice and that of your friend in Mr. Lockhart's dining-room this morning, my agitation was so great that I almost betrayed myself. On your behalf I have listened and watched and acted the spy all day. You can scarcely realize what my awful position is. But if you will not yield to my entreaties, I must tell you everything. Just then, a friend whom I happened to know and who lived at Yarmouth came up, uttered an exclamation of astonishment, and drew me aside. He invited me to spend the night with him, but knowing that Lockhart expected me at Freshwater, I declined his invitation. I was glad of the interruption, and kept by his side until we reached the pier at Yarmouth. I then looked round for Miss Ward, but she had disappeared. End of chapter 7, part 1
please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 7 The Iron Circlet. Part 2. I now hoped that I had escaped her altogether. I took a carriage and drove to the hotel at Freshwater, where I intended staying until Lockhart communicated with me. I knew the place well, having spent many a summer holiday there in my young days. The hotel was nearly empty, the season not having yet begun, and I found myself the only occupant of the coffee-room. I ordered a hasty meal and was just beginning to eat when a lady dressed in black entered the room and sat down at a distant table. A waiter came up and asked if she wanted anything. She ordered a cup of coffee, which was presently brought to her. I do not think she touched it. I saw her slowly stirring it with her teaspoon. She raised her eyes and encountered mine. She was Miss Ward. I perceived she had followed me. My dinner became instantly distasteful. I took up a paper and pretended to read. In a few moments a waiter brought me a note. I tore it open. It ran as follows. I am staying here at a big house called the Towers, where the work is to be done. Come up path by cliff toward the golf links. We'll meet you there. We can talk alone and arrange our plans. This is a matter of life and death. I thrust the note into my coat pocket, and raising my eyes, saw that Miss Ward had left her seat and come up to my table. "'You are to meet Mr. Lockhart on the path by the cliff toward the golf links?' she said in an interrogative voice. I made no reply. "'If you go, I shall go also,' she continued. "'By so doing, I put myself into the most deadly peril. Will not the thought of my danger influence you?' "'It is not necessary for you to go. It is for me.' I replied. Miss Ward, I cannot understand your motive, nor why you persist in harassing me as you are doing, but I can only act on my own judgment, and as I think best. Leave me now to my fate, whatever it is. I have my work to do, and must do it. Then it will be as I said, she answered. You are imperiling your life and mine, but I have spoken. I can add no more. She left the room, closing the door after her. Making a great effort, I tried to banish her words and her strange persistency from my mind. I put on my hat and started off. I went down the lawn, crossed the little front parade, and began to ascend the pathway. I walked on for about half a mile, along the edge of the cliff, looking to right and left for Lockhart. My mind was torn with conflicting thoughts. Should I tell Lockhart about Miss Ward, or should I forbear? Was there, by any possibility, some truth in the wild words of this girl, who had followed me down to this lonely place on a quest of such evident peril? I had always prided myself on reading character well, and the straight glance of those dark and troubled eyes added now to my perplexity. She looked like one who was speaking the truth. Still, to believe her was impossible, for to believe her was to doubt Lockhart. I walked on, wondering that he had not yet put in an appearance. I was now close to the golf links. Suddenly I heard to my right, and not a long way off, the sharp cry of a woman. It came on the night breeze, once, twice, then there was no further sound. I rushed in the direction from which the cry had come, and the next moment stumbled up against Lockhart. He spoke in an eager voice, but there was a tremble in it. "'They have got me down here on some cock-and-bull idea of analyzing the water supply,' he exclaimed. "'But,' I interrupted, "'did you not hear that cry? A woman in some sort of trouble. Did you not hear it?' "'No, I can't say that I did,' he answered. "'What is the matter with you, Head? You look quite overcome.' "'There was a sound just beyond you, as if a woman was in trouble,' I continued. "'She cried out twice. Are you certain you did not hear her?' "'Quite certain,' he replied. "'But let us listen for a moment. If we hear it again, we must, of course, go to the rescue.' We both stood still. The huge form of the bacteriologist was between me and the sea. Not a sound broke the stillness. The night was dark, but quite calm. 
The moon had not yet risen. Only the distant roar of the waves came up to us as we listened. "'You mistook the cry of one of the numerous seabirds about here for that of a woman,' said Lockhart. "'But, be it woman or not, I am afraid we have no time to attend to it any longer. Do you know that the tubes I brought with me have been stolen? But I was too clever for my foes, whoever they are. I suspected mischief, and threw the real culture away while we were crossing the Solent, and substituted plain broth in its stead. Now, what are we to do? This is a very ill-protected place, and I believe there is only one policeman.' "'We must stay quiet until the morning,' I answered, "'and then get help from Newport. "'With our evidence they have not the ghost of a chance. "'But, Lockhart, I have something painful to tell you. "'Your secretary.' "'Valentia Ward? What do you mean? "'Oh, don't worry about her now. "'She is safe in London. "'We shall catch the whole gang by the first light, if we are wary.' "'We continued to walk on and to talk in low voices. "'Now and then I observed that Lockhart glanced behind him. "'It was evident to me that he was in a state of extreme nervous tension. "'As for me—' I could not get that startled and anguished cry out of my ears. I wished now that I had insisted on making a more thorough search when I had first heard it. Suddenly, as we walked, I caught sight of a low shed in a hollow. It was partly surrounded by broken trees. "'Let us make for that old golf-house,' said Lockhart. "'It has been long unoccupied. We shall be safe from any observation there, and can discuss our plans in quiet.' I instantly acquiesced. I had made up my mind to tell Lockhart all about Miss Ward. I thought that I could do so best there. We entered the dark shadow of the trees, and as we did so, I detected a light between the chinks in the walls. I started back. Look, I whispered, the house is not unoccupied. They suspect us already. Let us go back. No time for that now, he answered, barely breathing the words. They were uttered so low. It is true. There is someone there, someone you would like to meet. Before I could move a step or utter a single cry, he had flung me on the grass. His great hands clutched at my throat like a vice, and with all the weight of his huge body he knelt upon my chest and pinned me to the ground. The sudden violence of the attack, the awful conviction that Valentia Ward had indeed warned me of a terrible danger, and that I myself was the duped victim of some hideous plot, completely stunned me and paralyzed resistance. The cruel hands crushed my throat and light swam before my eyes. I felt dimly, without comprehending it, that my last hour had come. The earth seemed to recede away, and I remembered no more. When I returned to consciousness, I was lying on a rough deal table inside the shed. I tried to move, but quickly discovered that I was both gagged and bound. By the dim light I could further see that I was surrounded by four men. They were all masked. Yes, at last I was in the clutch of the Brotherhood. As I watched, too stunned to realize all the awful meaning of the scene in which I found myself, another figure, also masked, slowly entered the room. It came forward and stood over me. My blood froze, for a pair of eyes of terrible power and satanic beauty looked into mine. I had seen them before, and even through the disguise of the mask I knew them. It was the voice of Madame Colucci herself that spoke. The words which now fell upon my ears I had heard from those same lips years ago in Naples. For a traitor to this brotherhood there is but one penalty, death. Then followed clear and concise words of the sentence. They were spoken in Italian, but the last words were English. And neither earth nor sea shall hold his body, but it shall be rent asunder between them. A dead silence followed the uttering of this sentence. Without a word, two of the men lifted me in their arms and carried me out. One of them I felt certain by his size and bulk must be Lockhart himself. The little procession moved slowly down the path to Compton Bay, just below. I now abandoned all hope. Madame Colucci had won, and I had lost. 
I had indeed been the victim of the cruelest and most astute foe in the world. But Lockhart, Lockhart, whom I had trusted! His name was well known in the scientific world. All men sang his praises. For was he not by his recent discoveries one of the benefactors of the race? And yet, and yet, my dizzy brain almost turned at the thought. He was in reality one of Madame's own satellites, a member of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. I saw, when too late, the whole deadly trap into which I had walked. The advertisement had been meant to arouse my attention. I had been inveigled down to Freshwater by means which only Madame Colucci could devise. Lockhart was my decoy. Why had I not listened to the words of the brave girl who had truly risked her life for me? That twice-repeated cry must have come from her lips. Without a doubt, in trying to follow me, she had been captured by our deadly enemy. Lockhart himself, in all probability, had done the deed. Had I not met him coming up the path, in the direction from which the cry had sounded? What ghastly doom was even now hanging over her head? While my heart beat wildly in my ears, and my brain swam, and my eyes were dizzy, wild thoughts such as the above came and flashed before me. Then there came a dizzying moment, when all was blank, and then again the cloud was lifted, and Madame's sentence, as she bent over me, filled the entire horizon. "'Neither earth nor sea shall hold his body, but it shall be rent asunder between them,' she had said. Death awaited me beyond doubt, but I had yet to learn what a lingering death was to be mine. We reached the sands, and I perceived lying at anchor within half a mile of the shore a small steam-yacht. So this was the way Madame and her satellites had come here. Doubtless, when they had sealed the doom of their victims, they would sail away and never return. But where was the girl? She was certainly not in the old golf-house. What had they done with her? I was lifted into a boat. Four men took the oars, and Madame Colucci, still wearing her mask, sat in the stern and steered. Were we going to the yacht? No. The men pulled the boat rapidly along, beneath the white chalk cliffs that towered above us. It was high tide, and the water rose in crested waves against the face of the cliffs. Suddenly we headed sharply round, and the men, shipping their oars, shot the boat beneath an overhanging lip into one of the chalk caverns that abound along the coast. I knew that I was entering my tomb. One of the oarsmen now lit a torch, and I at once saw something floating on the water, which looked like some heavy box of lumber lashed together to form a sort of raft. From the roof of the cave a chain was dangling. At the end of the chain was an iron circlet. Rapidly and without a word the ruffian seized me and placed me standing upright on the raft. They quickly lashed my feet to the heavy block of wood with a strong rope. Another man snapped the iron ring round my neck, and the next instant they had pushed the boat back out of the cave. As they did so, I distinctly heard Lockhart's voice address Madame Colucci. "'The other boat is ready,' he said. "'How long will it float?' asked Madame. "'From two to three hours,' was the reply. "'We shall lash her to the bottom, and—' The boat turned the corner, and I lost the remainder of the sentence. For a moment or two I thought of it, but the awful scene through which I had just passed confused my thoughts, and soon all feeling was concentrated on my own awful position. My neck was fixed to the chain above, my feet to the timber in the sea below. The words of my terrible sentence burst upon me now with all their fiendish meaning. As the tide went down, the whole weight of the raft would gradually drag my body from my head. The horror of such a fearful doom almost benumbed my faculties, and I stood as one already dead, being swayed up and down by the light swell that found its way into the cave. The moon rose presently, and its pale beam struck across my dungeon with a weird light. The moon that ruled the tide was to be a witness of her own work that night. I wondered vaguely how long I had to live, 
but Lockhart must have given me a violent blow when he felled me to the ground, and I was still more or less stunned. Gradually, however, the cool air which blew into the cave revived me, and I was able more thoroughly to realize the position. I now perceived that the chain had at least two feet of slack. Thus the Brotherhood had arranged to prolong my tortures. Was there the most remote possibility of escape? I laughed to myself, a horrible laugh, as the hopelessness of the whole thing rushed over me. And yet there was a mad, passionate desire to make up to Miss Ward for my want of faith in her, which brought sudden fire to my heart, and awoke each intellectual faculty to its fullest. She also was doomed. In what way and how I had but the vaguest idea, but that her death was certain I felt sure. If I could escape myself, I might yet save her. To rescue her now seemed to be the one important thing left to me in the world. I could only manage it by setting myself free. My hands were lashed behind me, but not, I noticed, very tightly. This was, my conquerors knew, unnecessary, for even with them free I could neither, on account of the ring of iron which held my neck, bend down sufficiently far to release my feet, nor drag myself up by the chain, as my feet were secure to the raft, and the effort would be too tremendous. I should soon have to let go. I determined, however, to free my hands if I could, and at last, with great pain and difficulty, worked off the cords that bound my wrists. I then instantly removed the gag from my lips, and felt a momentary sense of freedom. I stretched my hands impotently. Could they not in some way help me? My long scientific training enabled me now to think clearly and consecutively. The knowledge that on my life another in all probability depended spurred each endeavor to the highest point. This much at least was obvious. I could not stop the tide, nor release the iron ring from my neck, nor free my feet from the raft. But there was one thing just possible. Could it by any means be done? I grew cold with excitement as the thought struck me. Could I by any known means connect the raft with the slack of the chain above my head, and so let this connection, instead of my body, take the strain as the tide sank? If I could manage this, it might give time for possible relief to come. Surely it seemed a hopeless task, for I could not reach down my hands to the raft, but still I determined to make the effort, Herculean though it was. It would at any rate be better than the inaction of slowly waiting my doom. Each second the tide was sinking, each second therefore would render my task harder, as it would diminish the slack of the chain. I rapidly unbuckled the strong leather belt from my waist, and tried to stoop down sufficiently far to slip the end of the belt beneath the ropes that bound my feet. It was useless. At my utmost stretch I could not reach the ropes. But stay, if only a big swell would come, I might just slip the belt through the rope. I crouched as low as I could, waiting and ready. The precious time sped on. Suddenly I felt the raft dip deeply. I rose up to save my neck, and as the next wave lifted the raft high, I crouched quickly down again, and just managed to slip the strap under the rope and through the buckle before the swell subsided. It was touch and go, but I had done it. To connect the belt to the chain above my head was the next thing to try. I still had the cord that had bound my hands. One end of this I now lashed securely to the slack of the chain, but when I had done so I found that it was not quite long enough to reach the belt. I tore my strong silk scarf from my neck and fastened it to the cord, and thus managed at last to bind the cord and belt together. As I looked at the extraordinary rope which I had made for my deliverance, my hope sank within me, for I felt certain that it was far too flimsy. The strain on it would become greater and greater each moment, as the weight of the raft was thrown upon it. I seized the chain above my head with my hands, but I knew well that directly the connection gave way I should not be able to bear the strain on my arms for more than a moment, and when I released them I would be instantly strangled. 
The terrible time dragged on, and the tide sank steadily lower and lower. I saw the silk scarf stretch, and could hear the belt below creaking with the weight at each fall of the swell. In a few seconds I knew it must go, and then all would be over. I closed my eyes. My hour had come. Madame had indeed won, and I had lost. But what was that? What had happened? There was a loud crack, and I was sprawling on the raft. One glance showed me what had taken place. The iron ring in the rock, which would have been amply strong enough to bear the strain of strangling me, had yielded to the combined weight of myself and the raft, which had been half drawn out of the water. The ring had been suddenly torn from the rock. It was indeed a miraculous deliverance, for I did not believe the extempore rope would have held another second. Yes, the worst danger was over, but I was still in an evil plight. I quickly unlashed my feet, and then, with the ring of iron round my neck and the chain attached, sprang onto a projecting ledge of rock at the mouth of the cave. I saw to my joy that the fall of the tide was now on my side, for it had left me a means of regaining the sandy bay. Plunging and stumbling, sometimes neck-deep in water, I at last reached the sand, and fell down, trembling with exhaustion. A dark bank of clouds had crept up and blotted out the moon. I struggled to my feet and looked out to sea. Where was Miss Ward? To go to her rescue now was my first and only duty. I gathered the long chain in my hand, and ran up the winding pathway to the summit of the cliff. My intention was to make my way with all possible speed across the downs to Freshwater. I had gone but two hundred yards on the top of the cliff, when I saw a man coming to meet me. I hurried up to him, and saw to my joy that he was one of the coast guards. I quickly told him my story, pointing as I spoke to my dripping clothes and to the chain about my neck. The man was aghast, and stared at me with absolute amazement and horror. "'Well, sir,' he replied, "'and you think the young lady is in a similar plight?' I told him what I had overheard Madame Colucci and Lockhart say. "'Then they have her in a boat and allowed her to drift with the tide,' said the man. "'The tide is running out, and what wind there is is from the east. I have been a coast guard here for more than twenty years, but I'm blessed if ever I heard such a tale as this before.' "'We must save her,' I said. "'What is the quickest way in which we can get a boat? If anything is to be done, there is not a moment to lose.' The man considered for a moment, without speaking. "'There's a gent down here for the summer,' he said. His name is Captain Oldham, and there's his yacht lying out yonder in the bay. Maybe he could let her go out again for such a thing as this. It's no use trying with a rowing boat. Captain Oldham has a searchlight on board, too. Is he on the yacht now? I asked. Yes, sir. He's sleeping on board tonight, for he has only just come in from a cruise. The luck is on your side now. The very thing, I cried. Don't let us lose a single moment. We ran down the road to the bay, and a few moments later my new friend and I were pulling rapidly out to Captain Oldham's yacht. As we approached, my companion hailed the man on watch, and the owner himself appeared as we scrambled up the ladder. In the presence of the Coast Guard I repeated my extraordinary story. The emphasis of my words, and the iron ring round my neck, carried conviction. "'And the girl risked her life for you?' said the old seaman, his eyes almost starting from his head in excitement. "'That she did,' I replied, and I treated her brutally. I refused to believe in her. "'And you have good cause to think they set her adrift in a leaky boat?' "'I fear so, and I want to search these waters without an instant's delay.' "'It shall be done,' he cried. "'My God! I never heard of such devilish cruelty!' He turned, and shouted his orders to the astonished engineer and crew. All possible haste was made, and I tried to control my own growing impatience in getting the searchlight ready. I saw with satisfaction that it was one of the latest admiralty pattern, such as the steamers use in the Suez Canal. There was a powerful arc-light supplied from an accumulator— the moon had sunk, and it was quite dark now, but with this light not a speck on the sea would escape us 
within a radius of a mile. I went forward, holding the light in its projecting apparatus, and in about ten minutes we were steaming out to sea. Regulating the apparatus with the hand-gear, I began to play the great light to and fro in front of us. Two of the crew stood beside me sharply on the lookout. We had already passed the needles, but still there was nothing to be seen. Captain Oldham was at the wheel, and he now turned the yacht's head more determinedly out to sea. Mile after mile we went, without success. A hopeless despair began to creep over me. If that girl died, I felt that I could never hold up my head again. Suddenly one of the men beside me sang out, "'Skiff on the port beam, sir! Hard! A starboard!' The engine bell rang to full speed, and in a short time I saw that we were quickly bearing down on what appeared to be an empty boat, aimlessly drifting with its gunwale nearly down to the water-line. What did it mean? Was the girl really in the boat? Were we in time to save her? The yacht stopped, a boat was lowered, and the Coast Guard and I and two of the men pulled for all we were worth towards her. Lying at the bottom of the boat was the motionless form of a woman. Her head was just above water, her eyes were shut, and she looked like one dead. One glance at her face was sufficient to show me who she was. Was I in time to save her? We quickly released the thongs which bound the poor girl and lifted her into our boat. From there we brought her quickly to the yacht. "'Take the boat in tow,' I cried to one of the men. "'We may get some evidence from her that will help us.' This was quickly done, and we were soon steaming back to Freshwater Bay. Alas, however, my worst fears were confirmed. I was too late. All that was possible was done, but Valencia Ward never recovered.' The shock and exposure had killed her. Thus my efforts on her behalf had proved unavailing. She had risked and lost her life for mine. I telegraphed to Defrayer early on the following morning, and he arrived at Freshwater at noon. To him I told my extraordinary and awful adventure. One of our first cares was to examine the boat. We then perceived what Madame's fiendish cruelty really meant. A hole had been made in the bottom, in such a way that the boat would take several hours to sink. Thus Valencia was also to be the victim of a lingering death. The name of the yacht to which the boat belonged had been carefully scraped off the side, thus obliterating any chance of obtaining evidence against Madame. End of chapter 7「The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings」by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 8. The Mystery of the Strong Room. Part 1. Late in the autumn of that same year, Madame Colucci was once more back in town. There was a warrant out for the arrest of Lockhart, who had evidently fled the country, but Madame, still secure in her own invincible cunning, was at large. The firm conviction that she was even now preparing a mine for our destruction was the reverse of comforting, and Defrayer and I spent many gloomy moments as we thought over the possibilities of our future. On a certain evening towards the latter end of October I went to dine with my friend. I found him busy arranging his table, which was tastefully decorated and laid for three. "'An unexpected guest is coming to dine,' he said as I entered the room. "'I must speak to you alone before he arrives. Come into the smoking-room. He may be here at any moment.' I followed Dufrayer, who closed the door behind us. "'I must tell you everything, and quickly,' he began. "'I must also ask you to be guided by me. I have consulted with Tyler, and he says it is our best course.' "'Well?' I interrupted. "'The name of the man who is coming here to-night is Maurice Carleton,' continued Dufrayer. "'His mother was a Greek, but on the father's side he comes of a good old English stock. He inherited a place in Norfolk, Cor Castle, from his father, 
but the late owner lost heavily on the turf, and in consequence the present man has endeavoured to retrieve his fortunes as a diamond merchant. I met him some years ago in Athens. He has been wonderfully successful, and is now, I believe, or at least so he says, one of the richest men in Europe. He called upon me with regard to some legal business, and in the course of conversation referred incidentally to Madame Colucci. I drew him out, and found that he knew a good deal about her, but what their actual relations are I cannot say. I was very careful not to commit myself, and after consideration asked him to dine here to-night in order that we both might see him together. I have thought over everything carefully, and am quite sure our only course now is not to mention anything we know about Madame. We may only give ourselves away in doing so. By keeping quiet we shall have a far better chance of seeing what she is up to. You agree with me, don't you? Surely we ought to acquaint Carlton with her true character? I replied. Dufrayer shrugged his shoulders impatiently. No, he said, we have played that game too often, and you know what the result has been. Believe me, we shall serve both his interests and ours best by remaining quiet. Carlton is living now at his own place, but comes up to London constantly. About two years ago he married a young English lady, who was herself the widow of an Italian. I believe they have a son, but am not quite sure. He seems an uncommonly nice fellow himself, and I should say his wife was fortunate in her husband. But there, I hear his ring. Let us go into the next room. We did so, and the next moment Carlton appeared. Dufrayer introduced him to me, and soon afterwards we went into the dining-room. Carlton was a handsome man, built on a somewhat massive scale. His face was of the Greek type, but his physique that of an Englishman. He had dark eyes, somewhat long and narrow, and apt, except when aroused, to wear a sleepy expression. It needed but a glance to show that in his blood was a mixture of the fiery East, with the nonchalance and suppression of all feeling which characterized John Bull. As I watched him, without appearing to do so, I came to the conclusion that I had seldom seen more perfect self-possession or stronger indications of suppressed power. As the meal proceeded, conversation grew brisk and brilliant. Carlton talked well, and led on by Dufrayer gave a short résumé of his life since they had last met. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am uncommonly lucky, and have done very well on the whole. Diamond-dealing, as perhaps you know, is one of the most risky things that any man can take up.' but my early training gave me a sound knowledge of the business, and I think I know what I am about. There is no trade to which the art of swindling has been more applied than to mine, but there I have had luck, immense luck, such as does not come to more than one man in a hundred. I suppose you have had some pretty exciting moments, I remarked. No, curiously enough, he replied, I have personally never had any exciting times. Big deals, of course, are often anxious moments, but beyond the natural anxiety to carry a large thing through, my career has been fairly simple. Some of my acquaintances, however, have not been so lucky, and one in particular is just going through a rare experience. Indeed, I answered. Are you at liberty to tell us what it is? He glanced from one of us to the other. I think so, he said. Perhaps you have already heard of the great Rocheville diamond? No, I remarked. Tell us about it, if you will. Dinner being over, he leant back in his chair and helped himself to a cigar. It is curious how few people know about this diamond, he said although it is one of the most beautiful stones in the world. For actual weight, of course, many of the well-known stones can beat it. It weighs exactly eighty-two carats, and is an egg-shaped stone with a big indented hollow at the smaller end. But, for the luster and brilliance, I have never seen its equal. It has had a curious history. For centuries it was in the possession of an Indian Maharaja. It was bought from him by an American millionaire, and passed through my hands some ten years ago. I would have given anything to have kept it but my finances were not so prosperous as they are now, and I had to let it go. A Russian baron bought it and took it to Naples, where it was stolen. 
This diamond was lost to the world till a couple of months ago, when it turned up in this country. When Carlton mentioned Naples, the happy hunting ground of the Brotherhood, Dufrayer glanced at me. "'But there is a fatality about its ownership,' he continued. "'It has again disappeared.' "'How?' I cried. "'I wish I could tell you,' he answered. "'The circumstances of its loss are as follows. A month ago my wife and I were staying with an old friend, a relation of my mother's, a merchant named Michael Roden, of Roden Frere Cornhill, the great dealers. Roden said he had a surprise for me, and he showed me the Rocheville diamond. He told me that he had bought it from a Singalese dealer in London, and for a comparatively small price. "'What is its actual value?' interrupted Dufrayer. "'Roughly, I should think, about fifteen thousand pounds, but I believe Roden secured it for ten. Well, poor chap, he has now lost both the stone and his money. My firm belief is that what he bought was an imitation, though how a man of his experience could have done such a thing is past knowledge. This is exactly what happened. Mrs. Carleton and I, as I have said, were staying down at his place in Staffordshire, and he had the diamond with him.' At my wife's request, for she possesses a most intelligent interest in precious stones, he took us down to his strong-room and showed it to us. He meant to have it set for his own wife, who is a very beautiful woman. The next morning he took the diamond up to town, and Mrs. Carleton and I returned to Cor Castle. I got a wire from Roden that same afternoon, begging me to come up at once. I found him in a state of despair. He showed me the stone, to all appearance identical, the same as the one we had looked at on the previous evening and declared that it had been just proved to be an imitation. He said it was the most skilful imitation he had ever seen. We put it to every known test, and there was no doubt whatever that it was not a diamond. The specific gravity test was final on this point. The problem now is, did he buy the real diamond, which has since been stolen, or an imitation? He swears that the Rocheville diamond was in his hands, that he tested it carefully at the time. He also says that since it came into his possession, it was absolutely impossible for anyone to steal it. And yet— that the theft has been committed there is very little doubt. At least one thing is clear. The stone which he now possesses is not a diamond at all. "'Has anything been discovered since?' I asked. "'Nothing,' replied Carlton, rising as he spoke. "'And never will be, I expect. Of one thing there is little doubt. The shape and peculiar appearance of the Rocheville diamond are a matter of history to all diamond dealers, and the maker of the imitation must have had the stone in his possession for some considerable time.' The facsimile is absolutely and incredibly perfect. "'Is it possible,' said Dufrayer suddenly, "'that the strong-room in Rodin's house could have been tampered with?' "'You would scarcely say so if you knew the peculiar make of that special strong-room,' replied Carlton. "'I think I can trust you and your friend with a somewhat important secret. Two strong-rooms have been built, one for me at Cor Castle, and one for my friend Rodin at his place in Staffordshire. These rooms are constructed on such a peculiar plan that the moment any key is inserted in the lock electric bells are set ringing within. These bells are connected in each case with the bedroom of the respective owners. Thus you will see for yourselves that no one could tamper with the lock without immediately giving such an alarm as would make any theft impossible. My friend Rodin and I invented these special safes, and got them carried out on plans of our own. We both believe that our most valuable stones are safer in our own houses than in our places of business in town. But stay, gentlemen, you shall see for yourselves. Why should you not both come down to my place for a few days' shooting? I shall then have the greatest possible pleasure in showing you my strong-room. You may be interested, too, in seeing some of my collection. I flatter myself, a unique one. The weather is perfect just now for shooting, and I have plenty of pheasants, also room enough and to spare. We are a big, cheerful party, and the lioness of the season is with us, Madame Colucci. As he said the last words, both Dufrayer and I could not refrain from starting. 
Luckily it was not noticed. My heart beat fast. "'It is very kind of you,' I said. "'I shall be charmed to come.' Dufrayer glanced at me, caught my eye, and said quietly, "'Yes, I think I can get away. I will come with pleasure.' "'That is right. I will expect you both next Monday, and will send to Durbrook Station to meet you by any train you like to name.' We promised to let him know at what time we should be likely to arrive, and soon afterwards he left us. When he did so, we drew our chairs near the fire. "'Well, we are in for it now,' said Dufrayer, "'face to face at last. What a novel experience it will be! Who would believe that we were living in the dreary nineteenth century? But, of course, she may not stay when she hears we are coming.' "'I expect she will,' I said. "'She has no fear. Hello! Who can this be now?' I added, as the electric bell of the front door suddenly rang. "'Perhaps it is Carlton back again,' said Dufrayer. "'I am not expecting any one.' The next moment the door was opened, and our principal agent, Mr. Tyler himself, walked in. "'Good evening, gentlemen,' he said. "'I must apologize for this intrusion, but important news has just reached me, and the very last you would expect to hear.' He chuckled as he spoke. "'Madame Colucci's house in Welbeck Street was broken into a month ago. I am told that the place was regularly sacked.' She was away in her yacht at the time, after the attempt on your life, Mr. Head, and it is supposed that the place was unguarded. Whatever the reason, she has never reported the burglary, and Ford at Scotland Yard has only just got wind of it. He suspects that it was done by the same gang that broke into the jewellers in Piccadilly some months ago. It is a very curious case. "'Do you think it is one of her own gang that has rounded on her?' I asked. "'Hardly,' he replied. "'I do not believe any of them would dare to. No, it is an outside job.' but Ford is watching the matter for the official force. "'Mr. Dufrayer and I happen to know where Madame Colucci is at the present moment,' I said. I then gave Tyler a brief résumé of our interview with Carlton, and told him that it was our intention to meet Madame face to face early in the following week. "'What a splendid piece of luck!' he cried, rubbing his hands with ill-suppressed excitement. "'With your acumen, Mr. Head, you will be certain to find out something, and we shall have her at last. I only wish the chance were mine. Well, "'Have yourself in readiness,' said Dufrayer. "'We may have to telegraph to you at a moment's notice. "'Be sure we shall not leave a stone unturned to get Madame to commit herself. "'For my part,' he added, "'although it seems scarcely credible, "'I strongly suspect that she is at the bottom of the diamond mystery.' "'It was late in the afternoon on the following Monday, and almost dark, "'when we arrived at Cor Castle. "'Carlton himself met us at the nearest railway station, "'and drove us to the house, which was a fine old pile,' with a castellated roof and a large Elizabethan wing. The place had been extensively altered and restored, and was replete with every modern comfort. Carlton led us straight into the centre hall, calling out in a cheerful tone to his wife as he did so. A slender, very fair and girlish-looking figure approached. She held out her hand, gave us each a hearty greeting, and invited us to come into the centre of a circle of young people who were gathered round a huge, old-fashioned hearth, on which logs of wood blazed and crackled cheerily. Mrs. Carlton introduced us to one or two of the principal guests, and then resumed her place at a table on which a silver tea-service was placed. It needed but a brief glance to show us that amongst the party was Madame Colucci. She was standing near her hostess, and just as my eye caught hers, she bent and said a word in her ear. Mrs. Carlton coloured almost painfully, looked from her to me, and then once more rising from her seat, came forward one or two steps. "'Mr. Head,' she said, "'May I introduce you to my great friend, Madame Colucci? "'By the way, she tells me that you are old acquaintances.' "'Very old acquaintances, am I not right?' said Madame Colucci, in her clear, perfectly well-bred voice. She bowed to me, and then held out her hand. 
I ignored the proffered hand and bowed coldly. She smiled in return. "'Come and sit near me, Mr. Head,' she said. "'It is a pleasure to meet you again. You have treated me very badly of late. You have never come once to see me.' "'Did you expect me to come?' I replied quietly. There was something in my tone which caused the blood to mount to her face. She raised her eyes, gave me a bold, full glance of open defiance, and then said in a soft voice, which scarcely rose above a whisper, "'No, you are too English.' Then she turned to our hostess, who was seated not a yard away. "'You forget your duties, Leonora. Mr. Head is waiting for his tea.' "'Oh, I beg a thousand pardons,' said Mrs. Carlton. "'I did not know I had forgotten you, Mr. Head.' She gave me a cup at once, but as she did so, her hand shook so much that the small, gold-mounted and jeweled spoon rattled in the saucer. "'You are tired, Nora,' said Madame Clouchy. "'May I not relieve you of your duties?' "'No, no, I am all right,' was the reply, uttered almost pettishly. "'Do not take any notice just now, I beg of you.' Madame turned to me. "'Come and talk to me,' she said, in the imperious tone of a sovereign addressing a subject. She walked to the nearest window, and I followed her. "'Yes,' she said at once, "'you are too English to play your part well. Can you not recognize the common courtesies of warfare? Are you not sensible to the gallant attentions of the duelist? You are too crude. If our great interests clash, there is every reason why we should be doubly polite when we do meet.' "'You are right, madam, in speaking of us as duelists,' I whispered back. "'But the duel is not over yet.' "'No, it is not.' she answered. "'I have the pertinacity of my countrymen,' I continued. "'It is hard to rouse us, but when we are roused it is a fight to grim death.' She said nothing further. At that moment a young man of the party approached. She called out to him in a playful tone to approach her side, and I withdrew. At dinner that night Madame's brilliancy came into full play. There was no subject on which she could not talk. She was at once fantastic, irresponsible, and witty." Without the slightest difficulty she led the conversation, turning it into any channel she chose. Our host hung upon her words as if fascinated. Indeed, I do not think there was a man of the party who had eyes or ears for any one else. I had gone down to dinner with Mrs. Carleton, and in the intervals of watching Madame Colucci I could not help observing her. She belonged to the fair-haired and Saxon type, and when very young must have been extremely pretty. She was pretty still, but not to the close observer. Her face was too thin and too anxious. The color in her cheeks was almost fixed. Her hair, too, showed signs of receding from the temples, although the fashionable arrangement of the present day prevented this being specially noticed. While she talked to me, I could not help observing that her attention wandered, that her eyes on more than one occasion met those of Madame, and that when this encounter took place the younger woman trembled quite perceptibly. It was easy to draw my own conclusions. The usual thing had happened— Madame was not spending her time at Cork Castle for nothing. Our hostess was in her power. Carlton himself evidently knew nothing of this. With such an alliance, mischief of the usual intangible nature was brewing. Could Defrayer and I stop it? Beyond doubt there was more going on than met the eye. As these thoughts flashed through my brain, I held myself in readiness, every nerve tense and taut. To play my part as an Englishman, should I must have, above all things, self-possession— so I threw myself into the conversation. I answered Madame back in her own coin, and presently, in an argument which she conducted with rare brilliance, we had the conversation to ourselves. But all the time, as I talked and argued, and differed from the brilliant Italian, my glance was on Mrs. Carleton. I noticed that a growing restlessness had seized her. 
that she was listening to us with feverish and intense eagerness, and that her eyes began to wear a hunted expression. She ceased to play her part as hostess, and looked from me to Madame Colucci as one under a spell. Just before we retired for the night, Mrs. Carlton came up and took a seat near me in the drawing-room. Madame was not in the room, having gone with Defrayer, Carlton, and several other members of the party to the billiard-room. Mrs. Carlton looked eagerly and nervously round her. Her manner was decidedly embarrassed. She made one or two short remarks, ending them abruptly, as if she wished to say something else, but did not dare. I resolved to help her. "'Have you known Madame Colucci long?' I asked. "'For a short time, a year or two, she replied. "'Have you, Mr. Head?' "'For more than ten years,' I answered. I stooped a little lower, and let my voice drop in her ear. "'Madame Colucci is my greatest enemy,' I said. "'Oh, good heavens!' she cried. She half started to her feet, then controlled herself, and sat down again. "'She is also my greatest enemy. She is my direst foe. She is a devil, not a woman,' said the poor woman, bringing out her words with the most tense and passionate force. "'Oh, may I, may I speak to you, and alone?' "'If your confidence relates to Madame Colucci, I shall be only too glad to hear what you have to say,' I replied. "'They are coming back, I hear them,' she said. "'I will find an opportunity to-morrow. She must not know that I am taking you into my confidence.' She left me, to talk eagerly, with flushed cheeks, and eyes bright with ill-suppressed terror, to a merry girl who had just come in from the billiard-room. The party soon afterwards broke up for the night, and I had no opportunity of saying a word to Defrayer, who slept in a wing at the other end of the house. The next morning after breakfast, Carlton took Defrayer and myself down to see his strong-room. The ingenuity and cleverness of the arrangement by which the electric bells were sounded the moment the key was put into the lock struck me with amazement. The safe was of the strongest pattern, the levers and bolts, as well as the arrangement of the lock, making it practically impregnable. "'Rodin's safe resembles mine in every particular,' said Carlton, as he turned the key in the lock, and readjusted the different bolts in their respective places. "'You can see for yourselves that no one could rob such a place without detection.' "'It would certainly be black magic if he did,' was my response. "'We have arranged for a shooting party this morning,' continued Carlton. "'Let us forget diamonds and their attendant anxieties, and enjoy ourselves out of doors. The birds are plentiful, and I trust we shall have a good time.' He took us upstairs, and we started a few moments later on our expedition. It was arranged that the ladies should meet us for lunch at one of the keeper's cottages. We spent a thoroughly pleasant morning. The sport was good, and I had seldom enjoyed myself better. The thought of Madame Colucci, however, intruded itself upon my memory from time to time. What, too, was the matter with Mrs. Carleton? It needed but to glance at Carleton to see that he was not in her secret. In the open air, and acting the part of host, which he did to perfection, I had seldom seen a more genial fellow. When we sat down to lunch I could not help owning to a sense of relief, when I perceived that Madame Colucci had not joined us. Mrs. Carleton was waiting for us in the keeper's cottage, and several other ladies were with her. She came up to my side immediately. "'May I walk with you after lunch, Mr. Head?' she said. "'I have often gone out with the guns before now, and I don't believe you will find me in the way.' "'I shall be delighted to have your company,' I replied." "'Madame is ill,' continued Mrs. Carleton, dropping her voice a trifle. "'She had a severe headache, and was obliged to go to her room. "'This is my opportunity,' she added, "'and I mean to seize it.' I noticed that she played with her food, and soon announcing that I had had quite enough, I rose. Mrs. Carleton and I did not wait for the rest of the party, but walked quickly away together. Soon the shooting was resumed, 
and we could hear the sound of the beaters, and also an occasional shot fired ahead of us. At first my companion was silent. She walked quickly, and seemed anxious to detach herself altogether from the shooting party. Her agitation was very marked, but I saw that she was afraid to come to the point. Again I resolved to help her. "'You are in trouble,' I said, "'and Madame Colucci has caused it. Now tell me everything. Be assured that if I can help you, I will. Be also assured of my sympathy. I know Madame Colucci. Before now I have been enabled to get her victims out of her clutches.' "'Have you, indeed?' she answered. She looked at me with a momentary sparkle of hope in her eyes. Then it died out. "'But in my case that is impossible,' she continued. "'Still, I will confide in you. I will tell you everything. To know that someone else shares my terrible secret will be an untold relief.' She paused for a moment, then continued, speaking quickly. "'I am in the most awful trouble. Life has become almost unbearable to me. My trouble is of such a nature that my husband is the very last person in the world to whom I can confide it.' I waited in silence. "'You doubtless wonder at my last words,' she continued. "'But you will see what I mean when I tell you the truth. Of course you will regard what I say as an absolute secret?' "'I will not reveal a word you are going to tell me, without your permission,' I answered. "'Thank you. That is all that I need. This is my early history. You must know it in order to understand what follows. When I was very young, not more than seventeen, I was married to an Italian of the name of Count Porcelli. My people were poor, and he was supposed to be rich. He was considered a good match. He was a handsome man, but many years my senior. Almost immediately after the marriage my mother died, and I had no near relations or friends in England. The Count took me to Naples, and I was not long there before I made some terrible discoveries. My husband was a leading member of a political secret society whose name I never heard. I need not enter into particulars of that awful time. Suffice it to say that he subjected me to almost every cruelty. In the autumn of 1893, while we were in Rome, Count Porcelli was stabbed one night in the Forum. He had parted from me in a fury at some trifling act of disobedience to his intolerable wishes, and I never saw him again, either alive or dead. His death was an immense relief to me. I returned home, and two years afterwards, in 1895, I married Mr. Carlton, and everything was bright and happy. A year after the marriage we had a little son. I have not shown you my boy, for he is away from home at present. He is the heir to my husband's extensive estates, and is a beautiful child. My husband was, and is, devotedly attached to me. Indeed, he is the soul of honour, chivalry, and kindness. I began to forget those fearful days in Naples and Rome. But, Mr. Head, a year ago everything changed. I went to see that fiend in human guise, Madame Colucci. You know she poses as a doctor. It was the fashion to consult her. I was suffering from a trifling malady, and my husband begged me to go to her. I went, and we quickly discovered that we both possessed ties, awful ties, to the distant past. Madame Colucci knew my first husband, Count Porcelli, well. She told me that he was alive and in England, and that my marriage to Mr. Carlton was void. You may imagine my agony. If this were indeed true, what was to become of my child, and what would Mr. Carlton's feelings be? The shock was so tremendous that I became ill, and was almost delirious for a week. During that time Madame herself insisted on nursing me. She was outwardly kind, and told me that my sorrow was hers, and that she certainly would not betray me. But she said that Count Porcelli had heard of my marriage, and would not keep my secret, if I did not make it worth his while. From that moment the most awful blackmailing began. From time to time I had to part with large sums of money. Mr. Carlton is so rich and generous 
that he would give me anything without question. This state of things has gone on for a year. I have kept the awful danger at bay, at the point of a sword. "'But how can you tell that Count Porcelli is alive?' I asked. "'Remember that there are few more unscrupulous people than Madame Colucci. How do you know that this may not be a fabrication on her part, in order to wring money from you?' "'I have not seen Count Porcelli,' replied my companion. "'But all the same, the proof is incontestable, for Madame has brought me letters from him.' He promises to leave me in peace, if I will provide him with money, but at the same time he assures me that he will declare himself at any moment if I fail to listen to his demands. Nevertheless, my impression is, I replied, that Count Porcelli is not in existence, and that Madame is playing a risky game. But you have more to tell? I have. You have by no means heard the worst yet. My present difficulty is one to scare the stoutest heart. A month ago Madame came to our house in town and sitting down opposite to me made a most terrible proposal. She took a jewel-case from her pocket, and, touching a spring, revealed within the largest diamond that I had ever seen. She laid it in my hand. It was egg-shaped, and had an indentation at one end. While I was gazing at it and admiring it, she suddenly told me that it was only an imitation. I stared at her in amazement. "'Now listen attentively,' she said. "'All your future depends on whether you have brains, wit, and tact for a great emergency.' The stone you hold in your hands is an imitation, a perfect one. I had it made from my knowledge of the original. It would take the greatest expert in the diamond market who did not apply tests to it. The real stone is at the house of Monsieur Rodin. You and your husband, I happen to know, are going to stay at the Rodin's place in the country to-morrow. The real stone, the great Rocheville diamond, was stolen from my house in Welbeck Street six weeks ago. It was purchased by Monsieur Rodin from a Singalese employed by the gang who stole it at a very large figure, but also at only a third of its real value. For reasons which I need not explain, I was unable to expose the burglary, and in consequence it was easy to get rid of the stone for a large sum. But those who think that I will tamely submit to such a gigantic loss little know me. I am determined that the stone shall once more come into my possession, either by fair means or foul. Now you are the only person who can help me, for you will be unsuspected, and can work where I should not have a chance." It is to be your task to substitute the imitation for the real stone. How can I? I asked. Easily, if you will follow my guidance. When you are at the Rodin's, you must lead the conversation to the subject of diamonds, or rather, you must get your husband to do so, for he would be even less suspected than you. He will ask Monsieur Rodin to show you both his strong room, where his valuable jewels are kept. You must make an excuse to be in the room a moment by yourself. You must substitute the real for the unreal, as deftly as if you were possessed of legere de man. Take your opportunity to do this as best you can. All I ask of you is to succeed. Otherwise— Her eyes blazed into mine. They were brighter than diamonds themselves. Otherwise, I repeated faintly, Count Porcelli is close at hand. He shall claim his wife. Think of Mr. Carlton's feelings. Think of your son's doom. She paused, raising her brows with a gesture peculiar to her own. I need not say anything further, she added. "'Well, Mr. Head, I struggled against her awful proposal. At first I refused to have anything to do with it, but she piled on the agony, showing me only too plainly what my position would be did I not accede to her wishes. She traded on my weakness, on my passionate love for the child and for his father. Yes, in the end I yielded to her. The next day we went to the Rodin's. Despair rendered me cunning. I introduced the subject of the jewels to my husband, and begged of him to ask Monsieur Rodin to show us his safe and its contents. Monsieur Rodin was only too glad to do so. 
It is one of his fads, and that fad is also shared by my husband, to keep his most valuable stones in a safe peculiarly constructed in the vaults of his own house. My husband has a similar strong room. We went into the vaults, and M. Rodin allowed me to take the Rocheville diamond in my hand for a moment. When I had it in my possession I stepped backward, made a clumsy movement by intention, knocked against a chair, slipped, and the diamond fell from my fingers. I saw it flash and roll away. Quicker almost than thought I put my foot on it, and before anyone could detect me had substituted the imitation for the real. The real stone was in my pocket, and the imitation in M. Rodin's case, without anyone being in the least the wiser. With the great Rocheville diamond feeling heavier than lead in my pocket, I went away the next morning with my husband. I had valuable jewels of my own, and have a jewel-case of unique pattern. It is kept in the strong-room at the castle. I obtained the key of the strong-room from my husband, went down to the vaults, and under the pretense of putting some diamonds and sapphires away, locked up the Rocheville diamond in my own private jewel-case. It is impossible to steal it from there, owing to the peculiar construction of the lock of the case, which starts electric bells ringing the moment the key is put inside. Now listen, Mr. Head. Madame knows all about the strong-room, for she has wormed its secrets from me. She knows that with all her cleverness she cannot pick that lock. She has therefore told me that unless I give her the Rocheville diamond to-night she will expose me. She declares that no entreaties will turn her from her purpose. She is like adamant. She has no heart at all. Her sweetness and graciousness, her pretended sympathy, are all on the surface. It is useless appealing to anything in her but her avarice. Fear? She does not know the meaning of the word. Oh, what am I to do? I will not let her have the diamond, but how mad I was ever to yield to her! I gazed at my companion for a few moments without speaking. The full meaning of her extraordinary story was at last made abundantly plain. The theft which so completely puzzled M. Rodin was explained at last. What Carlton's feelings would be when he knew the truth, it was impossible to realize. But know the truth he must, and as soon as possible. I was more than ever certain that Count Porcelli's death was a reality, and that Madame was blackmailing the unfortunate young wife for her own purposes. But although I believed that such was assuredly the case, and that Mrs. Carlton had no real cause to dread dishonour to herself and her child, I had no means of proving my own belief. The moment had come to act, and to act promptly. Mrs. Carlton was overcome by the most terrible nervous fear, and had already got herself into the gravest danger by her theft of the diamond. She looked at me intently, and at last said, in a whisper, "'Whatever you think of me, speak. I know you believe that I am one of the most guilty wretches in existence, but you can scarcely realize what my temptation has been.' "'I sympathize with you, of course,' I said then. "'But there is only one thing to be done. Now may I speak quite plainly? I believe that Count Porcelli is dead. Madame is quite clever enough to forge letters which you would believe to be bona fide. Remember that I know this woman well. She possesses consummate genius, and never yet owned to a scruple of any sort. It is only too plain that she reaps an enormous advantage by playing on your fears.' You can never put things right, therefore, until you confide in your husband. Remember how enormous the danger is to him. He will not leave a stone unturned to come face to face with the Count. Madame will have to show her hand, and you will be saved. Will you take my advice? Will you go to him immediately? I dare not. Very well. You have another thing to consider. Monsieur Rodin is determined to recover the stolen diamond. The cleverest members of the detective force are working day and night in his behalf. They are quite clever enough to trace the theft to you. You will be forced to open your jewel-case in their presence. Just think of your feelings. 
Yes, Mrs. Carlton, believe me, I am right. Your husband must know all. The diamond must be returned to its rightful owner immediately. She wrung her hands in agony. I cannot tell my husband, she replied. I will find out some other means of getting rid of the diamond. Even Madame had better have it than this. Think of the wreck of my complete life. Think of the dishonor to my child. Mr. Head, I know you are kind, and I know your advice is really wise, but I cannot act on it. Madame has faithfully sworn to me that when she gets the Rochelle diamond she will leave the country for ever, and that I shall never hear of her again. Count Porcelli will accompany her. Do you believe this? I asked. In this special case I am inclined to believe her. I know that Madame has grown very anxious of late, and I am sure she feels that she is in extreme danger. She has dropped hints to that effect. She must have been sure that her position was a most unstable one when she refused to communicate the burglary in Welbeck Street to the police. But hark! I hear footsteps. Who is coming? Mrs. Carlton bent forward and peered through the brushwood. I possess the most deadly fear of that woman, she continued. Even now she may be watching us. That headache may have been all a presence. God knows what will become of me if she discovers that I have confided in you. Don't let it seem that we have been talking about anything special. Go on with your shooting. We are getting too far away from the others. She had scarcely said the words before I saw in the distance Madame Colucci approaching. She was walking slowly, with that graceful motion which invariably characterized her steps. Her eyes were fixed on the ground. Her face looked thoughtful. "'What are we to do?' said Mrs. Carlton. "'You have nothing to do at the present moment,' I replied, but to keep up your courage. As to what you are to do in the immediate future, I must see you again. What you have told me requires immediate action. I swear I will save you, and get you out of this scrape, at any cost.' "'Oh, how good you are!' she answered. But do go on with your shooting. Madame can read any one through, and my face bears signs of agitation. Just at that moment a great cock pheasant came beating through the boughs overhead. I glanced at Mrs. Carlton, noticed her extreme pallor, and then almost recklessly raised my gun and fired. This was the first time I had used the gun since luncheon. What was the matter? I had an instant, just one brief instant, to realize that there was something wrong. Then there was a deafening roar a flash as if a thousand sparks came before my eyes. I reeled and fell, and a great darkness closed over me. End of chapter 8, part 1. Chapter 8, part 2 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox org the brotherhood of the seven kings by l t mead and robert eustace chapter eight the mystery of the strong-room part two out of an oblivion that might have been eternity a dawning sense of consciousness came to me i opened my eyes the face of dufrayer was bending over me hush he said keep quiet head doctor he added he has come to himself at last a young man with a bright intelligent face approached my side "'Ah, you feeling better?' he said. "'That is right, but you must keep quiet. Drink this.' He raised a glass to my lips. I drank thirstily. I noticed now that my left hand and arm were in a splint, bandaged to my side. "'What can have happened?' I exclaimed. I had scarcely uttered the words before memory came back to me in a flash. "'You have had a bad accident,' said Dufrayer. "'Your gun burst.' "'Burst!' I cried. "'Impossible!' "'It is only too true.' You have had a marvellous escape of your life, and your left hand and arm are injured. 
"'To Freyer,' I said at once, and eagerly, "'I must see you alone. Will you ask the doctor to leave us?' "'I will be within call, Mr. de Freyer,' said the medical man. He went into the anteroom. I was feverish, and I knew it, but my one effort was to keep full consciousness until I had spoken to de Freyer. "'I must get up at once,' I cried. "'I feel all right, only a little queer about the head, but that is nothing. Is my hand much damaged?' "'No. Luckily it is only a flesh wound,' replied de Freyer. "'But how could the gun have burst?' I continued. "'It was one of Riley's make, and worth seventy guineas.' I had scarcely said the last words before a hideous thought flashed across me. De Freyer spoke instantly, answering my surmise. "'I have examined your gun carefully, at least what is left of it,' he said, "'and there is not the slightest doubt that the explosion was not caused by an ordinary cartridge. The stock and barrels are blown to fragments. The marvel is that you were not killed on the spot.' "'It is easy to guess who has done the mischief,' I replied. "'At least one fact is abundantly clear,' said Dufrayer. "'Your gun was tampered with, probably during the luncheon interval. I have been making inquiries, and believe that one of the beaters knows something, only I have not got him yet to confess. I have also made a close examination of the ground where you stood, and have picked up a small piece of the brasswork of a cartridge. Matters are so grave that I have wired to Tyler and Ford, and they will both be here in the morning.' My impression is that we shall soon have got sufficient evidence to arrest madame. It goes without saying that this is her work. This is the second time she has tried to get rid of you, and happen what may, the thing must be stopped. But I must not worry you any further at present, for the shock you have sustained has been fearful. Am I badly hurt? I asked. Fortunately, you are only cut a little about the face, and your eyes have altogether escaped. Dynamite always expends its force downwards. It is lucky my eyes escaped, I answered. Now, Dufrayer, I have just received some important information from Mrs. Carleton. It was told to me, under a seal of the deepest secrecy, and even now I must not tell you what she has confided to me without her permission. Would it be possible to get her to come to see me for a moment? I am sure she will come, and gladly. She seems to be in a terrible state of nervous prostration. You know she was on the scene when the accident happened. When I appeared I found her in a half-fainting condition, supported, of course, by Madame Colucci whom she seemed to shrink from in the most unmistakable manner. Yes, I will send her to you, but I do not think the doctor will allow you to talk long. Never mind about the doctor or anyone else, I replied. Let me see Mrs. Carleton. There is not an instant to lose. Dufrayer saw by my manner that I was frightfully excited. He left the room at once, and in a few moments Mrs. Carleton came in. Even in the midst of my own pain I could not but remark, with consternation, the look of agony on her face. She was trembling so excessively that she could scarcely stand. "'Will you do something for me?' I said in a whisper. I was getting rapidly weaker, and even my powers of speech were failing me. "'Anything in my power,' she said, "'except—' "'But I want no exceptions,' I said. "'I have nearly lost my life. I am speaking to you now, almost with the solemnity of a dying man. I want you to go straight to your husband and tell him all.' "'No, no, no!' she turned away. Her face was whiter than the white dress which she was wearing. "'Then, if you will not confide in him, tell all that you have just told me to my friend Dufrayer. He is a lawyer, well accustomed to hearing stories of distress and horror. He will advise you. Will you at least do that?' "'I cannot.' Her voice was hoarse with emotion. Then she said, in a whisper, "'I am more terrified than ever, for I cannot find the key of my jewel-case.' This makes matters still graver although I believe that even Madame Colucci cannot tamper with the strong-room. You will tell your husband, or Dufrayer. Promise me that, and I shall rest happy. I cannot, Mr. Head, and you, on your part, have promised not to reveal my secret. 
"'You put me in a most cruel dilemma,' I replied. Just then the doctor came into the room, accompanied by Carlton. "'Come, come,' said the medical man. "'Mr. Head, you are exciting yourself, I am afraid. Mrs. Carlton, I must ask you to leave my patient. Absolute quiet is essential. Fortunately, the injuries to the face are trivial. But the shock to the system has been considerable, and fever may set in unless quiet is enforced.' "'Come, Nora,' said her husband. "'You ought to rest yourself, my dear, for you look very bad.' As they were leaving the room, I motioned Dufrayer to my side. "'Go to Mrs. Carlton,' I said. "'She has something to say of the utmost importance. Tell her that you know she possesses a secret, that I have not told you what it is, but that I have implored her to take you into her confidence.' "'I will do so,' he replied. Late that evening he came back to me. "'Well?' I cried eagerly. "'Mrs. Carlton is too ill to be pressed any further.' head she has been obliged to go to her room and the doctor has been with her he prescribed a soothing draught her husband is very much puzzled at her condition you look anything but fit yourself old man he continued you must go to sleep now whatever part madame has played in this tragedy she is keeping up appearances with her usual aplomb there was not a more brilliant member of the dinner-party to-night than she she has been inquiring with apparent sympathy for you and offered to come and see you if that would mend matters of course I told her that the doctor would not allow any visitors. Now you must take your sleeping draught and trust for the best. I am following up the clue of the gun, and believe that it only requires a little persuasion to get some really important evidence from one of the beaters, but more of this to-morrow. You must sleep now, Head. You must sleep. The shock I had undergone, and the intense pain in my arm, which began about this time to come on, told even upon my strong frame. Dufrayer poured out a sleeping draught which the doctor had sent round, I drank it off, and soon afterwards he left me. An hour or two passed. At the end of that time the draught began to take effect. Drowsiness stole over me, the pain grew less, and I fell into an uneasy sleep, broken with hideous and grotesque dreams. From one of these I awoke with a start, struck a match, and looked at my watch. It was half-past three. The house, of course, had long ago retired to rest, and everything was intensely still. I could hear in the distance the monotonous ticking of the great clock in the hall, but no other sound reached my ears. My feverish brain, however, was actively working. The phantasmagoria of my dream seemed to take life and shape. Fantastic forms seemed to hover round my bed, and faces sinister with evil appeared to me. Each one bore a likeness to Madame Colucci. I became more and more feverish, and now a deadly fear that even at this moment something awful was happening began to assail me. It rose to a conviction— Madame, with her almost superhuman knowledge, must guess that she was in danger. Surely she would not allow the night to go by without acting? Surely, while we were supposed to sleep, she would steal the Rocheville diamond and escape? The horror of this thought was so overpowering that I could stay still no longer. I flung off the bedclothes and sprang from the bed. A delirious excitement was consuming me. Putting on my dressing-gown, I crept out onto the landing. Then I silently went down the great staircase, crossed the hall, and turning to the left went down another passage to the door of the stone stairs leading to the vault in which was Carlton's strong-room. I had no sooner reached this door than my terrors and nervous fears became certainties. A gleam of light broke the darkness. I drew back into a recess in the stonework. Yes, I was right. My terrors and convictions of coming peril had not visited me without cause, for standing before the iron door of the strong-room was Madame Colucci herself. There was a lighted taper in her hand. My bare feet had made no noise, and she was unaware of my presence. What was she doing? I waited in silence, 
My temples were hot and throbbing with overmastering horror. I listened for the bells which would give the alarm directly she inserted the key in the iron door. She was doing something to the safe. I could tell this by the noise she was making. Still no bells rang. The next instant the heavy door slipped back on its hinges and Madame entered. The moment I saw this I could remain quiet no longer. I sprang forward, striking my wounded arm against something in the darkness. She turned and saw me. I made a frantic effort to seize her, then my brain swam and every atom of strength left me. I found myself falling upon something hard. I had entered the strong-room. For a moment I lay on the floor half-stunned, then I sprang to my feet, but I was too late. The iron door closed upon me with a muffled clang. Madame had by some miraculous means opened the safe without a key, had taken the diamond from Mrs. Carlton's jewel-case, which stood open on a shelf, and had locked me a prisoner within. Half delirious and stunned, I had fallen an easy victim. I shouted loudly, but the closeness of my prison muffled and stifled my voice. How long I remained in captivity I cannot tell. The pain in my arm, much increased by my sudden fall on the hard floor, rendered me, I believe, partly delirious. I was feeling faint and chilled to the bone when the door of the strong-room at last was opened and Carlton and Dufrayer entered. I noticed immediately that there was daylight outside. The night was over. "'We have been looking for you everywhere,' said Dufrayer. "'What in the name of fortune has happened? How did you get in here?' "'In pursuit of Madame,' I replied. "'But where is she? For heaven's sake, tell me quickly.' "'Bolted, of course,' said Dufrayer, in a gloomy voice. "'But tell us what this means, Head. You shall hear what we have to say afterwards.' I told my story in a few words. "'But how, in the name of all that's wonderful, did she manage to open the safe without a key?' cried Carlton. "'This is black art with a vengeance.' "'You must have left the strong-room open,' I said. "'That I will swear I did not,' he replied. "'I locked the safe as usual, after showing it to you and to Freyer yesterday. Here is the key.' "'Let me see it,' I said. He handed it to me. I took it over to the light. "'Look here,' I cried, with sudden excitement. "'This cannot be your original key. It must have been changed.' You think you locked the safe with this key. Carlton, you have been tricked by that arch-fiend. Did you ever before see a key like this? I held the wards between my finger and thumb, and turned the barrel from left to right. The barrel revolved in the wards in a ratchet concealed in the shoulder. You could unlock the safe with this key, but not lock it again, I exclaimed. See here. I inserted the key in the keyhole as I spoke. It instantly started the bells ringing. The barrel turns, but the wards which are buried in the keyhole do not turn with it, and the resistance of the ratchet gives exactly the impression as if you were locking the safe. Thus, yesterday morning you thought you locked the safe with this key, but in reality you left it open. No one but that woman could have conceived such a scheme. In some way she must have substituted this for your key. "'Well, come to your room now, Head,' cried Dufrayer, "'or Madame will have achieved the darling wish of her heart, and your life will be the forfeit.' I accompanied Carlton upstairs, dressed, and though still feeling terribly ill and shaken, presently joined the rest of the household in one of the sitting-rooms. The utmost excitement was apparent on every face. Mrs. Carlton was standing near an open window. There were traces of tears on her cheeks, and yet her eyes, to my astonishment, betokened both joy and relief. She beckoned me to her side. "'Come out with me for a moment, Mr. Head.' When we got out into the open air, she turned to me. "'Dreadful as the loss of the diamond is,' she exclaimed, "'there are few happier women in England than I am at the present moment. My maid brought me a letter from Madame Colucci this morning, which has assuaged my worst fears. 
In it she owns that Count Porcelli has been long in his grave, and that she only blackmailed me in order to secure large sums of money. I was just about to reply to Mrs. Carlton, when Dufrayer hurried up. "'The detectives have arrived, and we want you at once,' he exclaimed. I accompanied him into Carlton's study. Tyler and Ford were both present. They had just been examining the strong-room, and had seen the false key. Their excitement was unbounded. "'She has bolted, but we will have her now,' cried Ford. "'We have got the evidence we want at last. It is true she has the start of us by three or four hours, but at last, yes, at last, we can loose the hounds in full pursuit.'" End of chapter 8